natural disasters, civil unrest, new diseases we've never even heard of, heinous mass killings, deep personal losses by so many people. All of these things and more have tested our vision of God. If there is God and if He's a good God and a loving God, why does He allow all this suffering and pain? I assert today exactly what Sister Judy just sang, and that is God is God, and God is supreme. He is supreme over everything. He is a good God and a wise God, a loving God, a just God. He never makes mistakes. His name, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is supreme. He reigns today. God's still on the throne, and I've got good news for you. God always wins, and so that's the... uh, the theme that we took up a couple of weeks ago. And in this uh, series, I wasn't especially trying to solve anything other than maybe just uh, maybe celebrate the Lord and celebrate specifically one of the great attributes of our God, and that is He is sovereign. He is supreme over everything. Honestly, when you get a hold of this truth, it really is so satisfying to your spirit just I don't have to figure it out. All I know is God is God, and He is wise. And as a result of that, I believe uh, we've been changed. I know I've been encouraged and reminded again that God is supreme. Well, speaking of God's uh, supremacy, there was a mother who was trying to teach her little boy how big God was and God could handle anything. And so little five-year-old Johnny was in the kitchen, and his mom was making supper, and She said, sweetie, I want you to go to the pantry and get a can of tomato soup. He wasn't really sure he wanted to go there, especially alone. He said, mom, it's dark in there. I'm scared. She said, honey, you need to go. I'm busy. I need you to go do that. And so finally he said, uh, she said to him, she said, besides, it's okay. Jesus will be in there with you. And so Johnny walked hesitantly to the door slowly opened it, peeked inside and saw that it was dark, and then started to leave when all of a sudden an idea came to him. Jesus, if you're in there, would you please hand me a can of tomato soup? (laughs) All this talk about God being supreme, well, maybe he can handle this then for me. Well, the fact of evil. Let's, uh, let's celebrate this morning God's sovereignty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look into your blessed word. We've been blessed and encouraged, Lord, by the sweet uh, friendships and fellowship, the handshaking, the holy hugs, the beautiful music, the instruments, the vocals, the great testimony. And now, Lord, we look into your word. Meet with us, Holy Spirit. Change us in Christ's name. Amen. There are at least nine areas that God is supreme over. Let's do a little review where we've been. God is supreme over all dominion. Satan claimed to Jesus, if you will just worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus didn't say, oh, you're lying. What Jesus said was, no, I've got a kingdom you don't need to, uh, you don't worry about. The fact was, though, that Satan, while he has power, he only has limited power. And 
while he does have the power to set up rulers and take down rulers, it is all within the permitted limits of God. God is supreme over dominion. He is supreme over disasters. Job had a terrible events happen in his life. All these physical disasters, an earthquake, a hurricane, um, in addition to violence on his family, and yet he looked beyond it all and he saw the hand of God. He said, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. I just bless the hand of the Lord. And then God is sovereign over discrimination. It's sad when people suffer because of the color of their skin or because of uh, some other, their gender or nationality or whatever. But as bad as that is, the worst kind of discrimination is the anti-Christian bias that is in this world today. And uh, the persecution that uh, Christians face all over the world, there's never been a time when more Christians have died for their faith than there is right now. And yet Satan, who is in charge of that, doesn't have the last say. God simply said, you know, if need be, sometimes we suffer, but in the end, God is sovereign over it. Number four, God is sovereign over death. He is supreme over death. Nobody can take the life of someone whom God wills to live. And nobody can make live someone that God wills to die. First Samuel chapter 2 and verse 6, the Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down one to the grave and bringeth another up. God is also supreme over demons. Remember the sad case of the man who was filled with demons? And one word made all those thousands of demons run. They went flying into the hogs and they were gone. One word. Jesus simply said, go. He is supreme over all demons. There is no question who is supreme when it comes to the principalities. And then we talked about disease. In Isaiah chapter 53, these are the very words that the gospel writer quoted when he said, you know, by his stripes we are healed. And so should God decide to heal somebody, they're healed. Because, and it's on the basis of his blood atonement. That doesn't mean that all of us will get all the healing we want all the time, every time right now. But eventually, and occasionally, God gives us some little rehearsals for that great uh, healing that we're going to get when we go to be with Him. But God is sovereign over disease. He may use methods, He may use medicine, or He may use miracles, but God is sovereign over all disease. That's why every time we want to be healed, we should pray. And every time we get healed, we should thank God. It was God anointing the medicine. It was God anointing the method. Or it was God just healing it, as uh, we would say, as a miracle. Well, now let's uh, go to the final three things. God is supreme, number seven, over desires or sin. It is a fact that much of our suffering comes from unholy desires. Either others sinful desires against you or me or my family, or our own sins. The origin of misery in this earth is sin. There would be no misery were it not for sin. Sin came into the world and made this earth, while there are beautiful things about it, made it a miserable place to live. 
He would say, oh, the earth is beautiful. Well, ask the people who lived in Santa Rosa how beautiful the earth is. No wildfires come. Ask the people in Houston who their lives are, have been wiped away. Today, I think, is the anniversary of Hurricane Sandy in New York, and people are still displaced five years later. No, while this earth is beautiful, the fact is this earth has been touched in every way, both physically and both by the people because of sin. Sin is the author of poverty. Sin is the author of corruption. Sin is the uh, author of starvation. Precious little children dying in Africa this morning and Bangladesh and other places in this world. It's because of sin. The lack of education is because of sin. War and conflict, sin. The murder of the unborn children around this world, especially in America, sin. It is sin that is causing all of these things, these desires. Adam and Eve sinned. Satan came alongside them and whispered to them, and they gave in. And as a result of that, consequences. Nature has been affected. Let's go to Romans chapter 8 and verse 22. Let's read that verse together, if you would. Romans 8, 22. Ready? Begin. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. This is a very figurative expression, and those who, uh, precious ladies in here who have given birth and others who've been close to them will know what we're talking about, and that is that this earth is just in constant birth pangs. It is just terrible uh, pains that go through all that's gone on. God's creation has been affected by sin. Satan sins. He loves sin. He, uh, he eats sin. He, uh, he is all about sin. He never sleeps. Everything he does is sinful. He hates Christians. He hates people. He hates this earth. He hates everything. He hates God. He wants to get everybody to sin. And so he is on a mission. Make people sin. Give people sinful desires. Make leaders to have sinful goals. And everything about that comes out of Hollywood and everything that comes wherever, basically Satan is just constantly with all of his demons encouraging people, sin, sin. Now, does that mean then that he is able to capture anybody and everybody at his will? Can he just simply make a person sin? Well, let's go to perhaps that most famous temptation of all of any human outside of an Adam and Eve, and that is the temptation of Judas to betray our Lord. Let's go to Luke chapter 22 and verse 3. Let's just see if the fact that Satan is Lord over sin, he can make people sin. Luke chapter 22, verse 3, then entered Satan into Judas. Did you get that? He entered into Judas. His surname was Iscariot. He was a number of the 12. He was a disciple. Verse 4, and he went his way, communed with the chief priests and captains. I mean, Judas was a bad dude already, but then satanically filled Judas, went over there and began to talk to those guys. I'm sure he was sweet and syrupy. And 
how he might betray him, meaning Jesus, unto them. He entered in. He entered in. He entered in. Now, when you read those words, it sends a shudder up and down your back. Like, he entered in, meaning he can just enter into anybody he wants to. But you know, when we read other scriptures, we find out that that's not the case. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 16, Luke is uh, talking about the betrayal of Jesus. And he said, actually, it was a fulfillment of scripture. What? Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 16. Men and brethren, the scripture was fulfilled. It had to be fulfilled. Which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David, what? David lived a thousand years before Judas. David spoke about Judas betraying Jesus. He spake before concerning Judas, which was a guide to them that took Jesus. If you want to jot it down, you can look at it at your own leisure. But in Psalm chapter 69, verse 25, the Bible talks about Judas, really, without naming him, saying that his habitation will be desolate, meaning Satan, of his own free will, destroyed his own life, his family's life. In fact, even his career, his habitation, it just, he just decimated. I mean, it's just flattened it. It's gone. How do we know that Psalm 69 is about Christ? Well, it talks, just a couple of verses for that in verse, uh, verse 25 talks about him having gall and vinegar given to drink. And very clearly, Psalm uh, 69, though it was speaking probably metaphorically about David, it was speaking about Christ. A thousand years before it happened, God was saying he's going to enter into Satan, or Satan's going to enter into Judas. God was sovereign over all that. God allowed that to happen. God, he used what he saw would happen. God sees uh, what's going to happen, and he uses it for his honor and glory. You'd say, well, are you saying then that God uses evil to accomplish a holy goal? Well, let's come 500 years past David, 500 years before Christ. Let's go to the book of Habakkuk. In the book of Habakkuk, that basically was the great concern of the wonderful prophet Habakkuk. This is one of the most remarkable sections of all of Scripture where we have a preacher, a prophet, speaking to God. Habakkuk was really another Jonah, only he responded much more wisely and better than Jonah did, and as a result, didn't have to go through all that Jonah did. But he was frustrated. He was standing in the streets of Jerusalem. There he was, the hustle and bustle of the, the city of Jerusalem, and he could see the wickedness, he could see the pride, he could see the idolatry, but he could also see that God was, uh, that the enemy was about ready to come in. He didn't like what he saw of his own people, but he couldn't believe that God was allowing the enemy to come in. So let's go to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. Behold, he among the heathen in regard and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. God said, I'm working a work. Verse 6, now wait, now wait a second. I, this verse is going to put you on your, on your ear here. 
For lo, I raised up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. <laughs> and they've been bitter and hasty for years and still are today, Iran and Iraq, which shall march through the breadth of the land and possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. God said he raised up Babylon. Now at this point, I think we need to make a distinction, very clear distinction, maybe circle that verse. There's a difference between God using evil and God creating evil. God cannot create evil. He cannot sin, in fact. The Bible is very clear about that. James chapter 1, verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted of evil, neither tempteth he any man. He cannot sin. It is repugnant to his holy nature. Mankind loves to blame God. Eve blamed man and Adam, and Adam blamed God, the, the woman you gave me. We have a tendency to blame God. But the fact is, while it's bad to sin, it's even worse to blame God for our sins. And in James chapter 1, basically God was saying, if you sin as a result of problems in your life, it's not my fault. Because the same problem make, makes one bitter makes another better. It's the, it's the soil. It's the condition of the heart. It's not God. God can use evil. He doesn't create evil. Does God raise up the Babylonians? Well, he uses the Babylonians. He uses evil to do his will and to fulfill his purpose. Babylon was God's paddle. He was God's uh, rod to apply divine discipline to his people. God allowed that. Habakkuk was scratching his head in verse 13. He says, thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. Surely you couldn't do that. You can't even look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and you hold your tongue? When the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? Really, God, you're going to use an evil nation to, to paddle your people? How could you do such a thing? God's response? Basically, his response was, shut up. And wait and watch and see what I do. And that's basically his response. His basically response was, even if I told you, Habakkuk, you wouldn't understand. I am God. I do what I will. I'm sovereign. I'm supreme. You watch. I promise you I'm going to work a work that even if I told you, you couldn't understand. I'm doing a work. When the book of Habakkuk closes, chapter 3, we find a totally different prophet. Instead of the one that's kind of complaining to God, and by the way, God doesn't mind complaints. He just doesn't like sin. <laughs> he doesn't mind you expressing your emotions, your feelings, your questions. God is totally okay with that. Just don't sin. Just don't, uh, just don't go off and start shooting people or killing people or going living in sin. No, he doesn't mind questions. God doesn't ask anybody to check in their brains or check in their spirit or their heart. God allows us to have emotions with him. But Habakkuk comes to the end, and in chapter 3, the all pretty much the entire chapter 3 is all a song of praise to God, how good the Lord is. Verse, chapter 2 and verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence. 
before him. Basically, the whole point is that whereas mankind sins and whereas Satan is on an absolute mission to make mankind sin, man don't, does not have to sin. Manufacturers make guns. They make pistols and rifles, and many of them are for hunting, and some are for protection, and others for sport or whatever the case, but no manufacturer makes guns so that people will murder, sinfully murder other people. The manufacturers are not the one who are murdering people. It is the one who is pulling that trigger. And that's basically what God is saying here. Look, I am not, I am not sinning in that I use sinful people. It's those people that make their own choices. And he said, by the way, not only am I going to discipline Israel, but I will also discipline Babylon, which he did. God said, they're not going to get away with anything. God is supreme over desire, sin. He is also supreme over deception. He is supreme over all deception. Now, Satan is doomed to experience and eternal destruction. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, and the devil deceived, that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. God wins. God wins. Satan's going in the lake of fire, folks. He's going there. Promise, he's going. But between now and then, He's going to take everybody he can with him. And it's up to you and I to make sure that we don't go. But it's up to you and I to do our best, to at least try to do what we can to keep the gospel going out so that people don't have to go to hell. Why does Satan hate the gospel so much? Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Because it is the power of God unto salvation. Nobody has to go to the lake which burned the fire and brimstone. Nobody has to go to hell. Because the gospel can break that unbelief. And so Satan does all that he can to keep people from believing. He does that in at least one of three ways. First of all, he disguises the gospel. He often comes into disguise. In the Garden of Eden, he came as a beautiful serpent back when they were beautiful. Paul warned that don't be just listening to every preacher 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, because some will appear as an angel of light. Satan tries to do everything he can to get people to falsely put their trust in something other than the Lord Jesus Christ, good works, or, you know, saving the earth, or whatever the case is. He wants people to feel religiously satisfied without having a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, because the Bible doesn't say Saving the earth is the power of God. It doesn't say, um, you know, believing in a guru is the, is the power of God. No, it talks about the gospel is the power of God. During World War II, a group of German soldiers dressed themselves as allied troops. They used American military vehicles that they had confiscated. And they went through all about the German countryside, changing the road signs. And in one particular battle, the Battle of the Bulge, was almost won because these German soldiers had taken these signs and twisted them and pointed the Allied soldiers in the wrong direction. Their deception caused huge casualties. 
And I will tell you, the demons and the soldiers of hell have not changed. They are taking the signs that are pointing to Jesus Christ, and they're pointing it to everything else. It's still going on. He tries to do everything he can to disguise the gospel. He also hinders the gospel. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 13 when he talked about seed being placed in the ground. And he said, there are these demons that come along and snatch it out of the before it can get any uh, growth. What are the demons and what are the satanic things that try to snatch away the gospel? Well, I'll tell you one big thing, and that is the internet. Now, I know the internet's like anything else. It can be used so from so much good. It's incredible. I mean, these beautiful little children are all being taught because of the internet. But I will tell you, the internet is also an incredible source of taking the seed of the gospel from people. Because people bury themselves in their phones, and they bury themselves in their electronic equipment, and they can... 24-7 can just think about everything and anything other than the gospel. He snatches it, and in that way, he hinders the gospel. The internet hinders the gospel. TV, perhaps, uh, hinders the gospel. The devil can use anything. He can use sports to hinder the gospel. He can use uh, family events to hinder the gospel and relationships. I mean, he uses everything to hinder the gospel. He doesn't use just out-and-out out wicked things. He uses so many things. He deceives people, he hinders the gospel, and then he tries to out-and-out out prevent the gospel. Really, Satan's main goal, Pastor Jeff told us about all these governmental people watching what's going on. What was their goal? Now, they think their goal is to preserve their way of life. Some Leaders way back when were sold on the concept of socialism and communism, and they feel like that's a philosophy that's going to provide for a stronger, better. They didn't do it because they hate people. They do it because they think it's going to help their country. They were sold a bill of goods. And so they're, they're wanting to make sure that nobody dissents from that or and creates any dissension among their people. The uh, the result of that, however, is that it prevents the gospel from being even preached. Socialism, freedom from religion. Here, uh, just a few days ago, uh, down in some parts of our country, they still pray before public um, uh, ball games, football games. And the group called the Freedom from Religion said, you can't pray publicly. You can't do that. Because we come to that stadium and we have a right to have freedom from religion. <laughs> My point is, you. so the only people that get to have their way is the people who want freedom from religion? What about the people who want God? <laughs> don't they have their rights too? <laughs> I mean, really. If you don't want to hear the prayers, shut your ears. I mean, really. That way everybody wins. You can be stupid and we can get the prayer we want, you know. And... Um, but that's, uh, that's exactly what Satan is trying to do. You'd say, well, why doesn't God stop all the, the drunken people out there that cause accidents? He could. God could also stop the lazy construction worker who does a substandard job on the home or on a car, maybe creates an accident. God could stop terrorists. Sounds attractive, doesn't it? But that intervention by God, 
would quickly lose its appeal if God was stopping you from doing something you wanted to do. Could God stop you from doing anything you ever wanted to do? Oh, yes, he could, but he doesn't. He allows you to do things that are gray area, me. He allows us to have a free will, and that's what we want. We want a free will. We don't want to be little robots of some divine being. Yes, God could stop things, but God chooses not to. And really, if God did stop all evil by killing the terrorists or whatever, then basically there'd be no humans, amen? Amen. Because God would kill all of us. Because all of us have sinned. But that's not the way God does His work. God allows these things. Now, does God prevent things? Yes, thank God He does. Things would be much worse if it wasn't for God preventing some things. But God also allows the consequences of evil. The fact is, when evil grasps our society... Rather than blaming God, we ought to thank God for the fact that there's a solution to all this, and that is the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of people being bitter at God, we ought to be thankful to God that He at least allows us to be saved from all of that and go to heaven. Everybody gets bitter at God. No, that'd be like blaming the police for crime. (laughs) Really? What's the point of all that? God is supreme over desires. God is supreme over deception. And God is also supreme over darkness. I mean, uh, suffering and problems are tough, but there's nothing like the lust for pleasure and prosperity. A desire for pleasure at any cost is the absolute darkest place to be. A few weeks ago, in our country, one of the most tragic, the most heinous, the most, uh, the largest uh, mass killing in history. One man went to a, Stephen Paddock went to a hotel in Las Vegas, and cool, calm, collected, began to shoot and kill dozens and dozens of people. He had planned it. Now, wait a second. Here's a man who was rich. Here was a man who had every kind of a lust fulfilled that he could ever have. Here was a man that basically had everything he'd ever wanted, but it was the darkest possible place to be. I was thinking the other day how that people want so much money. I mean, they just, I want money, I want money, I want more money. Actually, what you want is peace and joy and happiness. That's really what you want. You just imagine that money's going to get you that. But that's not especially the case. And I think this is a good point of that. And that is that Satan enslaves people in two ways. First of all, with misery and suffering. He tempts us to think, well, God is not good if he allows me to suffer. He's not worth trusting. It's no surprise then that the bestseller in the New York Times bestseller list over the last year was God is not good. That's the name of the book. God is not good. You see it in books, stores all over. People get mad at God and say, you know, pain and suffering show that I can't trust God. But I think even a bigger problem is the pleasure and prosperity. 
Because pleasure and prosperity makes us think that God is a rebel. We don't really need God. Only repentance and faith can break Satan's power over people in the pleasure. Repentance breaks that lust for pleasure. Repentance breaks that lust for prosperity. And that's why Satan hates repentance. Look what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25. In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. God said, whenever you are helping others uh, come to Christ, uh, be firm, but be meek, because you know, you've been there yourself. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and what will happen? If they repent, they will recover themselves. Notice they recover themselves. People don't go to hell because God um, predetermines them to go to hell. People don't go to heaven because God predetermines them to go to heaven. We recover ourselves out of the snare of the devil. It's our will. It's our free will. It's at that moment of repentance when we say, God, I am sorry for my sin. That's why God says he commands everyone to repent. He commands everyone to repent. Anybody can be saved. Anybody can have freedom. Anybody can be free from the snare of the devil. Satan is out to do everything he can to destroy people and take them to hell. But God is God. The story is told of the military legend Alexander the Great, the emperor of Greece, more specifically Macedonia. He had conquered most of the then known world. One day Alexander the Great and a small company of soldiers was approaching a very strong-walled city. As he approached the city, he raised his voice and demanded to talk to the king of that city. Alexander then ordered him, with a much smaller group than this well-fortified fort, he demanded that the king surrender and everyone inside. The king laughed, shouting over the wall, why in the world should I surrender to you? I mean, look at you guys. What can you do to us? Alexander offered to give the king a demonstration. He said, so be it. He then ordered his men to line up single file. And he then said, march. And as they marched towards the edge of a cliff, one by one, those men stepped off to their death. One, two, three. The people were watching in utter amazement. The these men were stepping off to their death merely at the command of their emperor. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten men, story has it, walked to their death merely at the command of their leader. The king and his people immediately surrendered. Their point? They said, if these men would be willing to die at the command of their leader, they knew that nothing could stop them and their eventual victory. You know, God wins when we commit ourselves to him. God reigns and we lose and God loses when we don't remember. He is supreme. In Psalm 90, 
3 and verse 1, the Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength. Psalm 96 and verse 10, say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world shall also be established. It shall not be moved. Psalm 97 verse 1, the Lord reigneth. Let the earth rejoice and the multitude of the isles be glad. Verse 90, chapter 90, Psalm 99 verse 1, the Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble. The Lord reigneth. When my car blows up this week, the Lord reigneth. When things don't go like I want them to, the Lord reigneth. When, no matter what happens, the Lord reigneth. God wins. God is God. God is God. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning.